In the meantime, let's go ahead and look at what I call separation, the prerequisite for holy living. And last week in Ephesians, uh, Paul was telling us that because of what Christ has done for us, and that is that he died on the cross for our sins, he rose again from the dead, and then he's calling out to individual people, drawing them to himself, and if they believe in him, he adopts them into the family of God and they become Christians. And the moment you become a Christian, God puts the Holy Spirit to live inside of you. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you this, this afternoon. If you're not a Christian, you don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. But once you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit begins to live in you. And as a result, the Bible says you are holy. You are a holy one. Or the English translation is you are a saint. So we talked about that. And the word holy in the Bible means to be set apart, to be separated. So when God saves you, he sets you apart. He separates you from your old way of life. He separates you from your old lifestyles and your old associations and your old affiliations. And he gives you a new identity. So you are a separated one, a holy one, set apart for God's purpose. That's what holiness is. That's what a saint means. That's what a holy person is to be. And that was Paul's theme last week. And since we are holy ones, he said, or saints, he said the Christian is a saint. And since you're a saint, you shouldn't be acting like those who are unsaintly or unbelievers who are typified by immorality, impurity, and greed and other vices and sin. So Paul's theme here throughout this passage is on how to be holy, how to be separate, how to be different, how to be distinct from the world, how to be distinct from unbelievers, because that's God's requirement for the Christian. So he gives some very practical reasons why we should be that way and some practical application of how we can actually implement it in our lives. God wants his people to be separate to have lines of demarcation, boundary lines, making it clear that when society we stand out, there's a difference. How about you, if you're a Christian? It's your job. Do people know that you're a Christian for good reasons? Do they know that you're different? Do you stand out? That's in keeping with Jesus' theme, you are the light of the world. There's something different about you. God wants believers to stand out, and so he calls them to be separated from the sinful world and Sinful people in a practical way. Now, if you have your Bible, before we get into Ephesians 5 and the one verse I want to look at, go to Leviticus chapter 11. Okay, Because this has to do with the theme of God requiring His people to be separate, to be distinct, to be different from those around them. So He's talking to the nation of Israel during the days of Moses when He's giving them all these laws. And He's telling them how He wants the Israelites to be distinct and to be His people and he's giving them ways that they can stand out from the rest of unbelieving, ungodly society. This is a great chapter in Leviticus chapter 11. Many people say, oh, there's nothing in Leviticus that's practical or relevant or it's all these laws. What does it have to do with us? Well, just by way of illustration, because the Bible says all Scripture is inspired by God. Did you know? Leviticus chapter 11 is inspired by God. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. All Scripture. So that's one of the advantages of Leviticus chapter 11. We can glean something from it to apply to our life about being separate. But look at verse 1. It's, it's an interesting and intriguing chapter. The Lord spoke again to Moses and to Aaron, who were leading Israel through the Promised Land. About two million Jews leading through the desert, by the way. 
and going to lead them into the promised land. And before he does that, he prepares them and reminds them they need to be separate, distinct, and different. And he said to them, verse 2, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, These are the creatures which you may eat from all the animals that are on the earth. So this chapter is about God is going to give Israel a distinct menu, a distinct diet that would set them apart from the rest of the world. And as you go through Leviticus, uh, God takes every area of their life and gives them certain laws that will make them distinct in every area of life. Their religion, the clothes they wear, how they cut their hair, circumcision at the time of birth, uh, practices uh, in terms of hygiene, and here, their diet. So God was covering every area of their life, and his point is that he wants them to be different, and he's trying to teach them something. Uh, but look at their menu, verse 3. Here was the main overall rule. Whatever divides a hoof, thus making split hoofs, and chews the cud, that's when an animal like chews its food and then swallows it and then regurgitates it back up and chews it again and swallows it, and chews it again and swallows it and chews it again and swallows it for digestion, easier digestion, that kind of thing. That's chewing the cud. So whatever animal splits the hoof and chews the cud, among those kind of animals, you may eat. That's interesting. Nevertheless, verse 4, you are not to eat of those animals among those which chew the cud or among those which divide the hoof. Uh, the camel, for though it chews cud, it does not divide the hoof. It is unclean to you. So you can't eat a camel. Uh, verse 5, likewise, the rock badger, for though it chews the cud, it does not divide the hoof. It's unclean to you. Can't eat that. Verse 6, the rabbit also. Actually, rabbit's pretty tasty. They say it tastes like chicken. But the Jews couldn't eat it. The rabbit also, for though it chews the cud, it does not have a divided hoof. And therefore, the Jews couldn't eat the rabbit. That's, a, that's good for rabbits. Uh, some of you would say pet little rabbit, cute little rabbit. Uh, number 7, and the pig, for though it divides the hoof... Thus, making a split hoof, it does not chew the cud. It is unclean to you, so the Jews couldn't eat pig. No bacon with your eggs. Sorry. No bologna sandwiches. No ham sandwiches. No pork chops. Man, that's good food. Verse 8. You shall not eat of the, their flesh, nor touch their carcasses. When they're dead, they're unclean to you. But these you may eat. Whatever is in the water, all that have fins and scales, those in the water, in the seas, or in the rivers you may eat, but whatever is in the seas and in the rivers that do not have fins and scales among all the teeming life of the water and among all the living creatures that are in the water, they're detestable things to you, and they shall be abhorrent to you, and you may not eat of their flesh. So it would be things like crabs and those kind of... Well, I, I'm not complaining about that. I'm not a crab fan. But anyway, um, he goes on. Look at verse 13. These, moreover, you shall detest among the birds. They are abhorrent to you, not to be eaten. The eagle... The vulture, the buzzard, verse 14, the kite, the falcon, the raven, verse 16, the ostrich. Have you ever had ostrich age, eggs? Well, if you're a Jew, you couldn't in the Old Testament. The owl, the seagull, the hawk, the little... So he goes on and lists different birds. So I, I think the turkey's okay. You can still have Thanksgiving, it looks like. Uh, then look at verse 20. This is my favorite. And all the winged insects that walk on all fours are detestable to you, Yet these you may eat among all the winged insects which walk on all fours, those which have above their feet jointed legs with which to jump on the earth. These of them you may eat. The locust and its kinds, yummy! 
It's, I think locust and honey, that's what John the Baptist ate. And the devastating locust in its kinds you can eat. And the cricket in its kinds. We have crickets at our house. You know, from now on, I'm not going to kill the cricket when my daughters complain. I'm going I'm to eat the cricket. Because you could eat the cricket in its kinds. And the grasshopper in its kinds. But all other winged insects which are four-footed are detestable to you. Actually, they eat those things. As a matter of fact, you know, these are things that are commonly eaten all over the world. Even today, uh, insects and so on and so forth. So, But what was the point? What was God doing? Flip over to Leviticus chapter 20. It's kind of a summary statement of all these, to us, I think, look like weird and bizarre laws. What was God doing? Well, he tells them why he gave them all these particularly... Interesting, unique, strange laws. Uh, in Leviticus 20, he summarized it in verse 22 by saying, You are therefore to keep all my statutes and all my ordinances and do them in order that the land to which I am bringing you to live will not spew you out. Moreover, you shall not follow the customs of the nation which I shall drive out before you. They were ungodly, evil, sinful, wicked people that... God was going to drive out before the Israelites. These were nations who literally worshipped false gods, sacrificed their own children to a false god named Molech to appease and satisfy him, killing their own children. That's the kind of practice that they engaged in that was so horrific and sinful that God was not going to tolerate at all. Verse 24, Hence I have said to you, you are to possess their land, and I myself will give it to you to possess it in land flowing with milk and honey, I am the Lord your God, here it is, who has separated you from the peoples. He has separated you. He has set you apart. That's what holiness means. He has made you distinct, made you different. If people look at you and think you are weird because you're different, then God thought that was okay. That was what he was trying to do. Verse 25, you are therefore to make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean, and between the unclean bird and the clean. And you shall not make yourselves detestable by any animal or bird or by anything that creeps on the ground, which I have separated for you as unclean. Thus you are to be holy. There it is. You are to be holy. You are to be separated. You are to be different. You are to be distinct from the sinful, unbelieving world. That's his point. You are to be holy to me. For I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. You are to be holy. Now, then let's go back to the New Testament now in Ephesians 5. In the New Testament, God still calls us to be holy. Peter says that. You need to be holy, for I am holy. So God's standard of calling us to holiness has not been done away with. But God calls us to be separate, distinct, and different in holiness in different ways now. Uh, God doesn't use the Old Testament law anymore. With the coming of Christ, who fulfilled the law died on the cross, rose again from the dead, and has come literally into the heart of every believer. You have Jesus Christ in your heart, and you have fulfilled the Old Testament law, and so you don't have to obey those ceremonial laws anymore, because Christ has fulfilled the greatest law of all, and that was the moral, spiritual law, the highest law, and that is the law of holiness, being set apart in our relationship towards God, giving Him single-minded devotion above everything else in life. So actually, all these practices in the Old Testament, these these were tangible, practical, practical, observable, visual aids to remind God's people of a greater purpose. And that was being set apart or holy in your individual personal life and your relationship to God. All that just to say in the New Testament, we don't have to, we can eat pork now. Jesus said it's clean, you can eat it. I don't want you to be set apart in those kind of ways anymore. Those were elementary. But I want you to be set apart at the most 
the highest level of commitment, and that's in terms of devotion to God. And it's being set apart in a religious way, a spiritual way, in a personal way, in an intimate way, in a moral way. We need to be set apart. And that's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter 5. So let's go ahead and look there. And we're going to just deal with verse 7 today, where Paul says this, after reminding Christians that they are all saints or holy ones, set apart by God, made holy by Christ in salvation, and because we're holy, made holy by Christ, we need to live holy lives and abstain from the sins that typify the world. Verse 6, just by way of reminder, he said, let no one deceive you with empty words about engaging in sin and getting away with it and that it's okay and that God doesn't care. For because of these sinful things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That's unbelievers. Therefore, verse 7, that's the key verse, do not be partakers with them. And that's what I want to look at. Short verse, but just a short devotional thought for us to keep in mind to really focus in on. Paul is reminding, commanding every Christian that we need to be partakers. We cannot be partakers with them. We're commanded to not be partakers with unbelievers, is what he's saying. Because he's referring back to verses 3 through 6. Don't be partakers with him. In other words, Christian, you need to be separated from unbelievers. Separated how? Well, separated in very specific ways. Not separated in every way. We're going to see that in verses 8 through 14. He's not saying you'd be separated in every way. In other words, he doesn't say we're supposed to be isolated in every conceivable manner from the world. But we are to be separated in very specific ways. And primarily it's religiously, morally, and spiritually is what he's talking about. So let's go ahead and look at your handout there. And just two things in light of this passage that I want us to concentrate on regarding what it means to be separated or to be holy, living apart from the world to God's glory. Therefore, to not become, I put fellow participants with them. That's unbelievers, sinners, those who don't know Jesus Christ personally. That's what he's talking about. Those who are sons of disobedience. Two points. There's. Uh, go ahead and let's fill those in right now. The first point is the motive for living separated lives as Christians. There is a motive. It's a divine one. And then the second point. The mandate to live separated lives as Christians. But let's go ahead and look at the motive for living separated lives according to Paul. And I put, therefore, well, what's the motive? The motive is therefore. That word there, very important word. That's the motive. It is the motive, and let me tell you why. He, Paul says, therefore, do not be partakers with them. Whenever you see the word therefore in the New Testament or in the Bible, therefore, it points you back to something he was just talking about. So it points you back. And the motive for living a separated life, living apart from the sinful world and engaging with sinful people in the world, the motive is therefore. He's pointing us back. And the motive is really verses 3 through 6. And specifically in verse 6, where Paul reminded Christians, you know, you shouldn't be living like the world, hanging out with the world, particularly you shouldn't be practicing the deeds of the world, which was immorality, impurity, and greed, and materialism, and covetousness, because, and the reason, or the motive is in verse 6, by way of reminder. Paul said, because of these wicked things that they do, the wrath of God abides on them. The wrath of God abides on them. And also, of the end of verse 5, they don't have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. An unbeliever, if they stay in unbelief and die in unbelief, they are not going to heaven. They will not be allowed into heaven. And in this life, if they continue to resist Christ and resist God and resist the gospel, the wrath of God continues to be poured down on them. 
And so the motive for living a separated holy life, not practicing the deeds that unbelievers typically practice in terms of their lifestyle, the motive is that we don't want to be tainted by the world's wrath that's coming down upon them because of their sin. We don't want to get singed from the wrath of God by delving into the practices of the world. If I were to ask you, where where is the safest place in the world to be? What would you say in your own heart? Where is the safest place in the world to be? Particularly for a Christian. Well, the answer is, is, is in the realm of obedience. That is the safest place in the world to be, from God's perspective. He's the judge. He is the king. He is sovereign. He sees all things. He knows all things. And if you're in the realm of obedience... That is the safest place to be. That puts you under the umbrella of God's sovereign protection. You are right smack dab in the middle of God's will. And that's the ideal place for a Christian to be. And an unbeliever who doesn't know Christ, where are they in terms of their status, their lifestyle? Well, according to verse 6, they're under the umbrella of God's divine chastening and wrath. Now, why would a Christian want to run from the under the umbrella of protection of God's blessing in the realm of obedience to hang out with an unbeliever who's under the umbrella of God's ongoing continual wrath? You can be dragged down by the world if you do that. So the motive for Christians, at least one of them stated in verse 5 and 6, particularly in verse 6, to not be separate, not to be joining unbelievers is that we don't want to be a part of God's wrath that's being poured down on the ungodly in this world. We can get singed and hurt in the process. Here's an example from my own life. I think about it when when I first became a Christian. I grew up loving basketball, playing basketball, uh, wanting to play college basketball. That was kind of my dream. And <clears throat> So from the time I was about yay high, it's from, I guess from the time I was as tall as a basketball, I was playing basketball. And all of my friends and associates, I did not grow up in a Bible, grow up in a Bible-believing Christian home. And my focus was just basketball. So all of my friends and my closest associates were people that I played basketball with. And as far as I can recall, for the first almost 19 years of my life, none of them were Christians because I wasn't a Christian. I didn't know many Christians. And so all of my friends were unbelievers. So even when I went to college, the people I hung out with and affiliated with and became like-minded with were the basketball players in college. And so that's how we spent all of our time together together. Uh, we had the same hobbies, habits, interests. We had the same lifestyle, same worldview, same goals, everything. This is all before I became a Christian. Then I had a radical salvation experience in college. And Christ changed me and made me a new person. As 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, When you get saved, uh, all things become new. Old things pass away and you're a new person. <clears throat> and what happened to me and what happens to somebody when they become a Christian is you have new desires. You have new loyalties. You have a new founded love for God the Creator and the Lord Jesus Christ in a personal and intimate way that you never had before. They, actually, you couldn't have as an unbeliever, and that's what I experienced. So everything on the inside changed dramatically for me when I got saved. And you know what? It had an impact on my friendships all of a sudden because every friend I had when I got saved was an unbeliever. And right away... They'd come to my dorm room or they'd come to give me, hey, McManus, let's go, let's go play, let's go hang out, let's go drive around, or it's a Friday and whatever. And all of a sudden I realized, wow, I, I really kind of don't want to go out with you and hang out anymore, like we used to all the time, every week, every day. My desire had changed on the inside. And I noticed it immediately upon salvation. God had changed me. Well, 
It was a gradual process. I couldn't just abandon my friendships. And we still had some things that were in common or whatever. So for a few weeks, uh, I was hanging out with two of my closest buddies before I got saved. They were not Christians, uh, but they knew about Christianity very well. Um, and I began to tell them what happened to me. I got saved. I came to know Christ. And he's changed my life. And uh, they were using language that I didn't use anymore and didn't want to use anymore. And I was telling them why. And uh, kind of you know, saying, hey, you guys need to stop. And here's what you need to do. And you know the truth about Christ. And you've heard it all before. And, and I submitted to it. And God's changed my life. And you can have this too. And, and actually, they would have none of it. Ah, oh, McManus, you're just going through a phase. You're getting all religious on us, man. What are you doing? So for weeks I was working on them, sharing the gospel, praying for them. But it, but as time went on, there was less and less of a desire for me to even hang out with them. I just didn't have anything in common anymore. So the last time I ever hung out with two of my best buddies, I'll never forget, it was a Saturday, college, and they came to my dorm room, knocked on the door, Hey, McManus, let's go out, man, let's go cruise, let's go drive around. Ah, okay, so how... Harmful could that be? It's not nighttime, it's light out, it's broad day, it's before 12, they're not drunk yet, this could be safe. Okay, let's do it. So, got in the car, drove around, went and shoot, shot some hoops at a school parking lot, we're done, hey, let's go get something to drink. We went to a Safeway, a local Safeway, went to the Safeway, we're about to get seven up and drinks and that kind of a thing, and then all of a sudden the two of them kind of went a distance away and they were conspiring, whispering, and I could see them. And I thought, uh-oh, this doesn't look good. And sure enough, it was not good. And we were in the Safeway. And they came over the, and they unveiled their plans. And they told me their strategy and they had, what they had going. And they wanted me to be a part of it and be one of their pawns and henchmen in the process here. And what they thought would be really cool is since the beer stash at Safeway was all by the exit door, it'd be really easy to just grab a six-pack and walk out of the store and not get caught. And so, McManus, here's what we need you to do. We need you to distract the manager. You need to stand over by the bubble gum machine and uh, ask him a question, blah, 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 and that kind of thing. So they're making up their plans. And, I, and as soon as I heard that, I'm out of here. I'm, I immediately, I just left the store. No way. And I started walking back home to my dorm room. It was miles away. It was going to take me forever to get back home. Well, I had been walking not very far at all. And then one of the other buddies, he came running out after me. Hey, Clev, hey, Clev. And he's, you could tell something was wrong. He goes, oh man, you got to help. I go, what? He says, well, our partner, uh, who devised all the plans and was carrying out the dirty deed, <clears throat> got caught by the manager. Got caught by the manager and the guys in the store, and actually, and there was a security guard in the store, and he was basically taken to the back room and being arrested. I said, you're kidding me. He said, no. And then we split. <laughs> and we got back to the college dorm, and then about a half hour later, I got a phone call. And my buddy was asking for me, and he was from, he was in the prison cell, uh, and he wanted me to come pick him up from prison. Uh, and I said, uh, well, number one, I don't have a car, and number two, I think you need to talk to your mom and dad about this. And then I gave the phone to my other buddy, and he went and bailed him out and whatever. But all that just to say, um, and eventually, you know, he learned from that and repented, and uh, God began to work in his life as well. That's the good news. But the bad news was, you know, all, even if, if I had chosen to stay there, even though I knew what they were doing was wrong, and even if I had made the decision to not do anything, to not actually steal anything, had I been there with them and he got caught, I would have been an accomplice. And you know what? I would have been guilty. And you know what? I could have ended up in jail for doing nothing, violating my conscience. All of that just because of the decision I had made to associate and affiliate with somebody whose lifestyle was not committed to obeying God all the time. We were not in the realm of obedience. And I almost got 
in trouble for it. But it leads me to my second point. What is the motive for living separated lives for Christians? The motives is that God says there is wrath coming down upon unbelievers and you don't want to be engaging in certain practices and partnerships with unbelievers because God's wrath is coming down. And specifically about that wrath, look at point number two. The mandate to live separated lives as Christians. Paul goes on, Therefore, do not be partakers with them. The them that he's referring to is unbelievers, that he calls sons of disobedience at the end of verse 6. That's who Paul is talking about. Do not have associations. Do not be fellow partakers. The NIV says do not be partners with. Okay, this doesn't. This is not saying totally isolate yourself from unbelievers. The word here is very specific. The New American Standard says do not be partakers with unbelievers and their dirty deeds. Like I said, the NIV says do not be partners with. A good translation is do not be fellow partakers with unbelievers and their practices and their lifestyle. And let me, let me tell you about this specific Greek word that is used uh, to describe partners or partakers in this verse. Partakers. This word occurs here and in Ephesians 3.6, and that's it in the New Testament. So it's a rare word in the New Testament. But it's used in other Greek contexts, so we know exactly what it means. It means to join in a venture with someone in a formal way, a formal relationship with an unbeliever. Keep that in mind. So this isn't, talk, this isn't saying that you can't have any interaction with an unbeliever. It's a formal, deliberate, partnering relationship at some level with an unbeliever. And another possible translation, casting one's lot with someone. It can be translated as fellow participant or joint partner. It's a compound word. When the word is used in Ephesians 3.6, Paul says that believing Jews, Christian Jews, and Christian Gentiles were now joint partners in Christ. So it's a formal, long-standing, deliberate relationship with someone. In that context, it's in a good way that Jew and Gentile are now partners or partakers together in the new covenant salvation experience of Christ. Here, it's a negative context. And in that passage, with Jew and Gentile that are believers in the New Covenant, the Jew and Gentile who are now saved, their common ground for a relationship and ongoing fellowship is based on their union to Christ. But believers and unbelievers have no such common ground. Therefore, believers should not join forces with unbelievers in living, religious, and spiritual matters in a formal, ongoing way or in a capacity. So there needs to be a practical and formal separation from unbelievers. Or in other words, there needs to be deliberate boundaries. And again, it's separation, not isolation. So we need to separate ourselves. And that uh, personal pronoun there at the end of verse 7, them, it's very specific. It's referring to people. The pronoun here is a genitive of association, which just means it's referring not to sins as much as it is to the persons who are involved in sin. And those are the ones mentioned in verses 3 through 6, the ones who are under God's wrath. So all that just to say, Christian, if you are a Christian, do not deliberately, in an ongoing, systematic way, partner with an unbeliever in terms of their lifestyle, their practices, their affections, their desires, their goals, their aspirations. Don't do it. God doesn't want us to do it. There needs to be separation. Why? Why does God want us to be separated in this formal way from unbelievers. Well, 
Like I said, because if you're not a Christian, everything about you that really matters is totally different. Bottom line, you don't have anything in common. I don't have anything in common of ultimate significance with somebody who is an unbeliever. Other than the fact that we were both created in the image of God. But in terms of my, like I said, my thought life, my worldview, my desires, my goals, my sense of humor is different. Did you know that? Or it should be. Our sense of humor. There's a new movie coming out with some guy who's portraying Noah, and they're mocking it and making a joke of it. And then there's a Hollywood actor who's God. And he says, I'm God. And that's supposed to be funny. Actually, it's blasphemous. It is the fulfillment of Romans chapter 1, where sinful man rejects the transcendent, universal, almighty, spiritual God of the universe and brings him down and creates him into an image. The image of man. That's exactly what that's doing. So even just our sense of humor should be different than the world and how they view reality. And, and another major difference, I think this is probably most, the most important one, is a Christian, my purpose for living is different than somebody who's not saved. My purpose is different. Everything I do as a Christian should be filtered through the grid of obeying God, pleasing God. And we're going to see that a little bit later in the passage, and we'll talk more about that. 1 Corinthians 10.31 whether then you eat or drink, and that's legitimate drinking, like Kool-Aid or water. Whether then you eat, it's talking about the most mundane thing in your life, every area of your life, even the so-called insignificant mundane areas of your life. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, that's the blanket statement, do it all to the glory of God. That's living with a specific purpose. Now, if you're not a Christian, you can't live with that purpose, right? Because you don't know God. You don't know Jesus personally. That's not the overriding motive in your life, is to serve and please Christ in all that you do. So that's the main reason that we are not to be formally partnering with unbelievers. Now, Paul's not the only one who ever said this, and this isn't the only passage it exists in. Go ahead and look at your notes, and I just want to read through those verses by way of reminder. Great thoughts. Actually, I just want to go to, you can read those on your own, but go to in your notes there and look at... Uh, the one I wrote out for you, and that's 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14 through 18. Just so we can be reminded, and it gets a little more specific, talking about this illegitimate partnering with unbelievers. And just Paul sums it up beautifully as to why we shouldn't. In 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18, he says, Do not be bound together. It's a, it's a similar word, but not the same word. But it means the same thing. Do not be formally bound together. Do not literally be yoked together. And it was speaking of uh, a plow that was being pulled by two oxen and the wood thing that goes over the necks that connects them together. That was the yoke. Okay, so you got two oxen pulling a yoke together simultaneously on the same path going the same direction. And Paul's saying, don't be yoked with an unbeliever because then it would be like an oxen hooked up to a goat. And that ain't going to work. Try pulling that thing. You ain't going to make a straight line with that plow because goats don't obey. They want to do their own thing. So do not be yoked, do not be bound together with unbelievers. And here, listen to what Paul says. For what partnership does righteousness and lawlessness have? The answer is none. And righteousness refers to the Christian, lawlessness refers to the unbeliever. Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? Light refers to the Christian, darkness refers to the unbeliever. Answer, none. Or what harmony has Christ with Belial or the devil? None. Bottom line, or what, is, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Answer, none. 
Or what agreement has the temple of God? The Christian's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit lives in us. So we should treat our bodies differently and holy and in a distinct way. What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we, Christians, are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separated, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. So there it is. So go back to Ephesians chapter 5. And now, and then we're going to, and there's, you know what, this just prompts a whole lot of questions in the mind of the Christian in terms of, well, where's the balance? How do we interact, our, you know, with unbelievers? I mean, Jesus, he was a friend of sinners, wasn't he? He hung out with sinners. Those kind of, so we've got to answer that question, and we will, and that's actually what the rest of the passage is about. So there is a balance. And there's an extreme balance that's illegitimate on both ends. You can go to the total point of isolation like the Amish community who go to an extreme level of separation, even saying that things are evil, not just people, like cars with batteries and headlights. That's not true. Televisions aren't evil. Technology is not evil. Cars aren't evil. People are. So that's the extreme position. And then there's the libertarian other extreme of Christians who would say, well, Jesus hung out with sinners, therefore I'm going to go to the bar and hang out with my sinful friends and I'll try to witness them to them between shots and so on and so forth. And that's the other extreme that needs to be avoided. So there is a biblical balance. And so hopefully in the next couple of weeks, we're going to try to strike that biblical balance of how we are to be in the world and not of the world. And it's, it's hard. It takes discernment. Uh, it takes teaching. It takes patience. Uh, it takes prayer. And it takes supernatural wisdom and help from God. Because God wants us to be in the boat, in the water, but he doesn't want you to have water in your boat. That's the way it is for the Christian in the world. We need to have our boat in the water, but we can't let the water get in the boat. Uh, So we're going to be talking about that in the next couple of weeks. But right now, with that thought in mind, that God has called us to holiness, to abstain from sin in the world, but also to abstain from formal partnering with unbelievers who have ungodly lifestyles, we need to be separated and be holy before God so that He can use us to our maximum potential, and also so that we can grow in maturity and glorify God, because that is the most important thing of all.